Welcome to the Media Mavens podcast, where you'll hear the most compelling, provocative, and real conversations with industry leaders and innovators in tech, sports, and entertainment with our host and CEO of well-known PR firm, Axis Entertainment, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHaye with Media Mavens podcast, and we're super excited to have Bruce Bendel, the founder and chairman of Big Block Capital Group on the show with us today. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Hey, guys. So it's, I'm so, I mean, I love talking with you. Every time I see you and talk with you, we just have so much to talk about. But, you know, we have such limited time, but you guys have been doing such tremendous stuff in the metaverse, being sports, tech, entertainment. And I know you're with Family Office. I just kind of want to jump in to this side of the Family Office first. You have a tremendous background in the automotive industry. What made you decide to pivot out of automotive into the family office style business? I've always, uh, you know, surviving in the automotive business in New York City. It's uh, related to driving a taxi. If you could drive a taxi in New York City, everyone agrees you could drive it to the rest of the world. And uh, same thing in the automotive business. I've owned 18 dealerships. Only two had the service department connected to the uh, sales department. And uh, that's because one was in Pennsylvania, one was on Long Island. So just operating, you know, with an expensive media, real estate market, you, you learn how to survive, you know, it's almost a survival of the fittest. And when there's a downturn, that's the time that we expand. And, you know, so that solution and being a survivor, you know, uh, just enabled us to, to grow in that business. But over the years, we ended up doing a lot uh, in addition to the uh, automobile and traditional automobile sales. You know, I started when I was in college and used car dealers couldn't get bank financing. And we went, I went to open a, an account across the street from my college, even though we operated in Brooklyn, New York. And I went to the manager and I said, I see you have a little loan application. You think I could borrow some? and get some financing for my customers in Brooklyn, and I'll bring them over to the branch. And she said, sure. And after that, all of a sudden, we promoted that we had bank financing. You know, we just ended up taking them to the bank. But those times changed, and, you know, we grew the business. We did our own financing, our own leasing in the 70s, uh, our own fleet operations uh, for police cars, for taxi cabs. So we always took a business and just made sure we squeezed all the juice out of lemon and made sure all the departments were operating, you know, as, as best as we could, considering, you know, we had a very big overhead operating in New York City. So that was, that's the automotive. And then what happened was, you know, I got involved with Bloomberg early on. I know the mayor for 30 years. We ended up uh, doing a uh, buying site on his terminals by hitting MAJ Go. And I brought in the head of uh, Kelly Blue Book, which, uh, they had subscription model, and we were able to take the tech and convert it to uh, raw data. And all of a sudden, uh, Bloomberg had pricing. It, it went on Bloomberg terminal to my fax machine, to my beeper, you know, produced a five page written report, sent it back to the terminal by via fax. And that was the technology that was used in the early 90s. But when the internet came around, they became the largest site because I convinced them to convert that that or digitally and uh so that helped them but anyway the uh i was on a lot of advisory boards uh Mannheim interactive uh, microsoft carpoint auto vitel ford's interactive dealer system so i had a lot of 
knowledge on what manufacturers and what people in the industry had to do. And that's why um, things have changed now. And, you know, dealerships are in a great position because they don't have inventory. So they're all making a lot of profits. But, you know, it's great in the next year or two. But we're still going to have a, a broken supply chain, I believe, for at least two more years. But when it comes, it's going to come back and all of a sudden, you know, dealers aren't going to know how to sell cars. They're going to have to be competitive again. And meanwhile, you know, with more electric cars coming, they're not going to have service and parts revenue. So, you know, I'm always thinking about, well, what do we do to prevent that? Let's not wait till that happens. So that's when I looked at the franchise model and said, you know, you can't compete in the automotive by putting a BMW dealership in a Mercedes or a Chrysler in a GM. But there's nothing wrong with bringing other franchises into the model. So we ended up... Uh, acquiring an interest through the family office in franchise one, two, three, which took every single franchise in the United States and actually put them into a uh, portal that would, you know, would be available for connecting franchises and franchisees and was more of a lead generation. But I saw it more of an opportunity to really take that industry that wasn't regulated and be able to say, hey, it, you know, you don't have to rely on brokers, franchises and franchisees could connect here. The founder wrote a book about how to go, you know, how to open up a franchise and start one. But, you know, I envisioned that this is a, the wild, wild west out there. You don't have ratings like we do in the automotive industry. So we ended up, you know, we're bringing in JD Power. We're entering, we're working with the IFA. So we're going to be a really disruptive franchise platform and marketplace to buy and sell and auction off franchises, which doesn't exist the way we're doing it now in the marketplace, but that's just one example. And that's for the automotive. So my dealerships or dealerships around the country, maybe we'll put in a fitness franchise or an urgent care or a uh, fast food or a coffee franchise, you know, in the same existing, you know, location. And if you think about dealerships in the United States, they've got the best locations, uh, you know, in the country on main thoroughfares. So, and they're going to be underutilized. So now they can, be thinking of other revenue sources and then move to the real estate industry. The same thing happens in the real estate industry. You have so many vacant commercial properties because of COVID, you know, landlords are waiting there instead of saying, Hey, wait a second, I can go on this platform, pick up one or two more franchises, put them in, in my existing properties. And then if I get a better tenant, I can move the franchise. In the meantime, I got revenues coming in. And I'm filling up spaces instead of spot pop-up stores. And most of the real estate owners have personnel and they can incentivize the personnel. So I think the franchise situation is, is especially good for real estate operators these days. And it makes a big difference when they buy a mixed-use property and know that they could bring in strategic franchises that could help not only for them to make revenue, but also for tenants in the building that could use those facilities so why you know put a gym in a you know new mixed-use building for residential when you can own the franchise and put it in there and make it available to the tenants but also have revenues coming in from the outside so things like that that uh i'm always thinking about how that and and that's what motivated you to get out of the auto industry and get into family office the investment strategic investment side of the business right well yeah that's a funny story, too, because uh, I had a lot of different investments over the years. I started the World Series of Fighting on the MMA, which is now the PFL. 
We invested in the uh, bankrupt the Revel Casino that I brought to one of my partners that we ended up uh, doing now. It's now the Ocean Casino. And uh, we just sold 50% of it to the Illich family. So that's doing well. It's probably the number one casino in, in Atlantic City now. But we, you know, I look at these things and I say, you know, is there an opportunity? You know, can I make a difference? A lot of times you make investments in companies and, you know, you just make that initial investment. But no matter how small it is, we always like to say, you know, what else could we do for this investment if we can't do anything and we're just making a, an investment that's going to sit back? Then we might as well just focus that on real estate deals where we don't have to do anything and just click coupons. So. But that's the way, you know, I've thought about it over the years. And, you know, so when we look at these investments, we, we say, what's the potential? But from the family office standpoint, that started about five years ago when someone realized all these investments I had and they said they wanted to run the family office. So I said, I don't have a family office, but now that you mentioned it, I'm going to create one. And that's what I did and took my three kids that were older and said, okay, here's what we're doing. And we're going to hire a CEO and then a CFO and we're going to report to the kids. I'm going to help it along the way. So that's how we started uh, with the Block Capital Group. I think that's amazing because I think a lot of people don't know what it takes to start a family office. They don't know like how to find good investments. And I'm looking at the franchise one, two, three, and I just think this is such an amazing model because it really does allow people who want to be entrepreneurs to find a franchise with they can search by investment, they can search by revenues, locations, and really nothing like this has, I've seen nothing like this before. And I've looked at franchises. So when you're looking at these companies, what are the three things that just kind of pop in your head that potential startups for your family office should have? Okay. So, you know, again, there's no set formula because everything's different. You know, I always look at the use of proceeds. I've made a number of investments that I turn around and I say to myself, you know, would I invest that money if I was taking that money? Would I follow the game plan? So I, I try to listen to them first and whoever it is raising capital and then say, okay, how are you going to spend it? When I see them spending it on things that, you know, I could buy cheaper or better or differently, uh, you know, I'll just say to them, look, you know, I don't mind investing, but you need to think about it. And I think a lot of the investments that go in, uh, people give them all the money they need up front. And I don't believe in that. You know, I like to partial it out, make sure that they're performing. And if they're not performing, we have to fund additional dollars. Well, then we should benefit from funding additional dollars or be able to make some recommendations or solutions. So, you know, you kind of should know that up front when you look at an investment. At least that's what I do. So, but on the franchise one, two, three, where you just looked at it. You have to understand that's still a beta site. We have a whole new site with user experience. And we think about the guy owning his own business. Their dream is out there. So we're creating a user experience. You know, now that we finished the database, and we took every single franchise in the United States. And the reason why it's disruptive is that the franchise brokers get up to a 50% commission. That's 5-0. So they don't really care about the, you know, the poor guy that has his life savings and They'll just put them into any franchise in any area. And franchises have a higher success rate, but we feel that, you know, by doing it for reduced commission and working as a marketplace, it's going to benefit the whole industry. And I think uh, bringing in a rating system like they do in automotive and the airline industry 
is going to be another factor. You know, the franchises that make commitments will have to live with it. Otherwise, they'll look at their ratings and realize that they're not going to be able to scale up and expand. So that's that's what we accomplished there. But and as a test, we got over a hundred thousand inquiries just you know in a short period of time just to see what people would be looking at. And so I think that's that's exciting on that end. Um, but what else? <laughs> I want to talk about some of your investments and partnerships because you know we mean automotive was such a long history of being the automotive industry. I know the future of automotive and motion. It's becoming so more advanced with electric cars and every, you know, self-driving cars. We want to talk about a little bit about some of these projects. Like the metaverse is a huge, I mean, this is where our future was a few years ago. Everybody's jumping on the metaverse bandwagon right now. And you do have a, I want to say a, a client or a partnership, or an investment with Subnation, who is really pivoted from esports to doing a lot of metaverse projects let's talk a little bit about that because you're pivoting with technology where a lot of family offices investors are staying old school your particular family office is really looking beyond the future of where we're at right now so let's talk about some of these bigger projects you're working on that are changing the landscape and the way we act interact from entertainment sports um and just basic everyday you know, retail, which is where yeah. the metaverse comes into play. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing in the metaverse and what's up with Subnation. So Subnation started as owning our own IP and with a specialty in the esports area because of the managing partners' experience in that and how, you know, I could go from having MMA fights and fill up an arena and have a little tough time doing that because it was a big sport but all of a sudden, we'd have an eSport event and have 20 million people watching in the street. So we said, wait a second, there's got to be a different solution to this. But we really pivoted Subnation into a gaming and Web3 venture studio. And we really create you know, the digital worlds and the innovative physical experiences that you can have. And people talk about the metaverse, and it's like a new thing. Oh, everyone's got to get into the metaverse, and half of the people don't even know how to get into it and what it involves. And you know, it's just, it's remarkable how it's, it's like the new thing to talk about. You know, it's like when they had movies and they made the VR and AR and everyone's, oh yeah, I'll throw that in there. And then they realized how much it cost them per minute. You know, <laughs> that's not going to work. I don't have the budget for that. But I was telling everyone I was doing it. So maybe they did a minute of it, the two minutes of it. But, uh, but what we did in this innovation is became an advisory. We made investments in platforms, uh, and, you know, we went to NASCAR and told NASCAR as an example that they need to think about how they get into the metaverse because they have existing loyal fans, but they have the opportunity to take advantage of what you can create in the metaverse and and then connect them with the existing fan base. And that was the, uh, so we sat there and, uh, you know, there are probably over 75, you know, companies that they do business with. And when they heard our solutions, you know, they made us their partner for our thought leadership and, uh, you know, really a comprehensive to help them develop a comprehensive strategy in the Web3 area. So, you know, this way they could capture new audiences and deal with all the tech and entertainment and still be connected to their loyal fans. So that's why we're creating a ticketing platform, you know, NFTs and everything else involved. So it's exciting. And then um, some of the other projects, we looked at the Atari Hotels, they came to us and we became, you know, uh, looking at the hospitality experience. We did all the strategy. We worked with 
Gensler on the architect design on it. And, you know, our vision of hospitality is not just what happens at hotel, but it's the experience before you get to a hotel, while you're at the hotel and after you leave the hotel. You know, it's like you look at Atlantic City is a reason why the billboards driving down to the hotels are facing the other way when you're leaving. Now that thing is, okay, you just left the hotel. We want to connect you to our online model. But when you're going there, they don't talk about going online in the room. They want you to go down to the casino. So if you think about how all those things are reconnected now, you know, there's so many different strategies on the sports end of it as well, you know, in the sports betting and name it. So, you know, so we looked at, you know, the models on the Atari and really focused on the culture of gaming and the lifestyle of the sports user. And we think that that's going to have a lot of factors and a lot of the investments that we have. Like we created a arcade, you know, and we'll have an arcade in the visioning that in the Atari hotels, along with some other unique experiences. But arcade started out as an experimental retail concept, you know, that really took the culture of video gaming and esports lifestyle. And all of a sudden, you know, we just mushroomed that and partnered with Fred Siegel to develop a retail concept that would be, uh, an interactive, you know, gallery store and studio. And uh, it would find the cultural and just create a vision and uh, have a metaverse uh, consumer experience right in the store. So, you know, you have physical and digital goods in, in a, you know, a, a top store like that. Uh, it's just great exposure. I, I think stuff. what you guys are doing is amazing because like the whole experiential and the metaverse is really for, I mean, the NFL has just started doing all of their metaverse. These, like you have NASCAR, the hospitality, well, you have a mass market of so millions, billions of people and fans, like sports, entertainment. There's got to be a better way to connect with the fans on the physical and digital side. So I think metaverse works very well in the markets you guys are in. And I agree with you. So here's so many people dropping oh, NFTs, metaverse experts. They don't even know what the metaverse means. The whole Web 3.0 has been such a messy, there's been no clarity. And I do give Doug Scott credit, who, you know, creative officer over at Subnation, because I've seen him speak, I've seen his decks, and he really knew how to break it down for people to understand the metaverse. But the metaverse isn't for anybody. And I think there's that misconception, like with the NFTs, oh, I could just go take an image of something and make billions of dollars. The NFT market, has dropped 75%. And I thought I read on Apple News that Apple News decided about a week ago, they are not allowing any NFT purchases on any of the apps. They just made a hard and fast rule. So they took a beating in the press. Well, it's Apple. They're so innovative. It's iOS, but Apple will not allow NFT purchases within the Apple developer accounts anymore. But then somebody made a comment that the NFTs are coming back. I mean, I know you have the Fred Siegel Arcade, which is one of my favorite places. But Bruce, honestly, given all this technology, do you feel that the NFTs kind of had their time in the sun and then it was the next fad? Or do you think NFTs are really going to be a viable part of the metaverse and it's going to be a money generating project for people because if they've, they've dropped and are they coming back? Or do you think that they won't come back? They're just going to be kind of a add-on to everything else that we're doing. So I think, you know, you probably hit it. The way you're talking is about the way people thought about, oh, look at what this NFT sold yeah. for. That's all they thought about when, in fact, the NFT is, you know, you talk about a QR code, right? You know, 
a QR code was like, it wasn't popular. Why? Because you had to download an app. You know, once Apple and the phone companies recognize a QR code, it was like, whoa, there's a whole other world. I believe it's going to happen like that for the NFTs. The Forget about the value of the NFTs because something is only worth what it is to the buyer, right? You know, it's a marketplace, uh, you know, and I think there was a fad of everyone jumping in and these crazy numbers. But I think the NFTs, you know, gave it reminds me of, uh, you know, you'd have an oil painting and you had a beautiful auto piece of work. And then what happened? You know, you couldn't make another one like that, but you made the lithographs, right? And it were limited editions and boom. So instead of having a limited edition, you know, you now took creative art people and, and people that had products and now said, hey, here's another way to drive some extra revenue from that community. And I think that was a good thing. It just, you know, it jumped in so fast and so expensive and people don't know in the marketplace. It's uh, almost like what happened with crypto. Everyone said, oh, I'm not going to do it. And next thing you know, it's 60,000. Now it's 20,000, you know, people, you know. So it's it's craziness, but I think the NFTs are a way to use them and to develop them, you know, for businesses and uh, for their fan base. You know, we have a fan relation management tool that we use over at Subnation for our clients, and you know, and it's all about how you can connect brands with their, you know, loyal customers, their fans. You know, if it's a sporting event. You need to take advantage of that. And, you know, when people make purchases, you want them to know what purchases they made. So NASCAR is really ahead of the game, you know, taking our advice. And I think they're going to recognize, you know, the average NASCAR fan probably spends close to $500 on souvenirs, you know. And, you know, companies like NASCAR and other companies really don't have that information on who's purchasing them. And I think that's where they need to go. It's all about the data and how you collect it and how you benefit the ultimately the consumer. We believe that the consumer is eventually going to dictate his own data, what he wants to be served at any time. And, you know, is going to be loyal to the people that respect whatever he's being served at the time. So it would be interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we look at all that and make those investments and decide, you know, what makes sense and, you know, what we could get involved to improve it. Like, cause I'm a huge QR code person. I love QR codes. So, but, and, you know, with the awards and stuff, so it kind of feels like we have a client who uses Bitcoin for social responsibility in other parts of the world, whether it's building villages, clean water programs, helping them, you know, thrive and survive off of, you know, education, how to build a business. They're using Bitcoin, you know, as a social cause and they're doing very well. And it's good to see, but it sounds to me, and I, I mean, I want to jump this back over to Marjorie is that NFTs had their purpose. It was fun. It was a fad misconception of what the use of it is to where NFTs sound to me like maybe start to be used more as a utility to drive data, to give you data on who's buying as, whereas crypto or Bitcoin is not being used as an investment given the volatility, but used as a means to survive in other countries. So I think we have these two huge pillars, NFTs, Bitcoin, crypto, that kind of powered up coming off COVID, all the excitement of technology. But I now see them breaking away from quick money schemes to utility for data, and then the currency being used for social good to people to live in other countries when cash and fiat isn't available. I still feel like that what created this frenzy in the past year and a half are now really digging into their actual useful purpose in the universe versus in what it was meant to be when they first came out. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, you think about it, even think about the esports. You know, people are gaming around the world just to put food on the table for their family. You know, in competition and whatnot. You know, and there were companies that were paying them to game and get to certain levels of competition. So it's like when you think about it, you know, the NFT, in my opinion, will be a tool that will be used. You know, hopefully, you know, companies recognize how to use them. You know, and that's a strategy behind what we recommend when we, you know, look at a company and say, what are they doing right? What are they doing wrong? Just like if I was making an investment company, if I can't approve it, then more than likely, I'm just going to be like any other investor. And if I believe in the product and where it's going in the marketplace and and in the future, then that'll be the only reason why I would invest. But if I can invest in something where, you know, the founders are telling me the vision they have, and I believe that that is the correct vision, and we can help to improve it. And those are the things that we look at. You know, you talk about that in sports and, you know, in some nation we created the Players League. And, you know, we realize that players on professional teams have bigger followings when you put them all together than teams themselves. And then we also found out that a lot of players, you know, are esports fans and game all the time. So we created the Players League that we're coming out, which, which would be owned by the professional athlete. And uh, working with their fan base, you know, and uh, and letting them compete. So they own them and play the game and they work with their fans. And it gives them a future even after they stop, you know, being an athlete. You know, they'll have a loyal following. They'll have a franchise in an esports league. You know, so there's so many other ways to, to socialize and to, and to take advantage of fan bases, you know, that athletes have. So that's why, you know, we looked at that and said, that's really uh, how we can tie them all together in, with that investment. Yep. I, guess, <laughs> I don't know how many other things I got going, but, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. You have a lot going my life, on. You know? <laughs> so Marjorie, um, I, I, I'm sorry yeah. to get you off. I just had to get that off my head. Yeah. Marjorie, I know you're going to say something. Uh, uh, otherwise, I can maybe talk about our... Uh, yeah, I was just actually going to ask like a little bit about your career progression because you really started out in these physical goods and now you're going kind of merging the physical to the metaverse. Through your career, have there been some times where you're like, oh, I really you know, nailed this one or a time where I made a mistake, but I really learned something. If you were to mentor your younger self, what are a couple suggestions you give your younger self? My younger self, I, I think I could probably talk about my kids, you know, their success and how hardworking they are and things that I tried years ago and they looked at me. I remember when the internet came around and we had very slow speeds, you know, I said for the automotive, you know, uh, Sony was building a web page that took minutes to load on. And I said, you know, you can't make them go through three pages. So I created a thing called Auto Life, which is a one page page that had my niece Alice in a convertible and it was a way that they could link to every car and driver magazine out there directly to the website they could have a buying ability to buy cars you know uh right within one click you know and that was the most important thing so I think what happens is companies and investments and people get involved you know uh, get excited about something and they just build things where they invest in in companies and they say oh i gotta own my own platform my own software and things are changing so fast in the industry that by the time they build it and get it done there's 10 other people that either built it quicker or doing it differently so you know you, you really have to look at these and say what is it that you know where's your vision as an investor as an owner 
And, you know, whatever time scales people are seeing, you know, could it really be accomplished? You know, and who else is going to go in there? It's uh, years ago, used to invest in a company. And the first thing they said is, you know, how is this company affected by China? You know, you don't hear that anymore. Now, you know, there's different thinking about how you make these investments and what happens in the world. So anyway, that's what we're thinking about. But, you know, when I look at the, uh, you know, I said, let's create so many people are talking about impact investing. You know, we just invested in the climate fund, you know, which we thought a for-profit climbing climate fund, but we are also looking at the products. So like our dome audio, which, you know, Sarah knows about because she was on the original call which, with a professional athlete that said, hey, this is a great thing that we developed here. And how can we take advantage of it? And what was the vision of these two founders? And, you know, when I thought about the product and then I demoed it, I said, you know, and I listened to where their vision was. And Sarah had some great ideas about it. But I said that, you know, I think they could do a lot more. But investing in a, a tech company that has multi patents and producer of a disruptive proprietary headphone. I thought was something that you know, for the audience hearing impaired, for them to be able to to listen to music and to maybe go to a Broadway show after not being able to do it, you know, in the demos that they had, people, they didn't have that capability. All of a sudden they're dancing, they could watch movies, you know. I always thought that you had to hear through the your ear. I didn't realize that you could hear through the bones around your ear. And they were able to produce this product that... Uh, has, you know, a patent and has two speakers on both sides, you know, so it's four speakers coming in. And it's really, you know, great for that industry and it's a big market. But I look at what else can they be doing? And when you think about gamers and young kids and people running into the metaverse, you know, and damaging their hearing going forward, it's not only taking care of, you know, existing hearing impaired, you know, users, but also you know, how do you, if I'm a parent and I have young kids and they're putting on headphones eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, you know, if you look at Beats and Apple, there's no system that says, hey, it's too loud, too low. You know, it's in a car, you have an engine and there's a reason why the RPMs could drive up to the red mark, which means it could be damaging, you know, the engine. It should be like that for, for hearing, you know, for headphones. You know, if you turn up the volume too much, you know, it's almost like a, you know, put a stop on it, you know, where if you want to use it, that's okay. Just do it safely. So we're excited about that investment. And, and uh, when we look at it and say, you know, again, we know we can turn around and, and use that strategy and help it. We just invested in uh, the high brands, which is a sustainable uh, food uh, delivery system where you get a box every month with your favorite, you know, sustainable foods. And, you know, if that worked for you, and, you know, we think that that's you know, going to be a great platform. They're opening up a second warehouse. You know, we have an ability to bring merchandise and other things through some of the other investments we have. And we think having, it's not just so much about organic, but, you know, what else is sustainable out there that could last longer? And uh, so, it's you know, it's an interesting investment. And we think that the uh, we could add value to that. So we made that investment and we just invested in uh, 1906, which is, you know, which a lot of people recognize it as the most innovative brand in cannabis. But they have, you know, pills, fast acting, low dosage, targeted uh, pills that would be, you know, good for sleep, good for energy, you know, just such a unique item. And uh, 
And we think that that's going to be a big marketplace down the road when, you know, they legalize it in all the states. And the fact that this company has such a great recognized brand, I actually had my kids do the due diligence and go to a couple of places and say, all right. And my daughter even said to me, all right, dad, don't say a word. I'm going to interview them. And she did a great job. And the people, they, you know, the stores knew about the product, you know, and, and was so knowledgeable about it. So, you know, when we look at a brand like that or a company that we invest in, you know, you know, and we do some due diligence, part of that due diligence is not just taking for granted what the company is telling you, but you want to learn about it, experience it, test it out yourself, you know. And that's what we did for that. So and we think down the road, you know, they'll be acquired by a big drug company. But, you know, we think we can add value to it. So I love this conversation because for the past, you know, 16 years having an agency, I've seen so many different VCs come into all these small startup tech companies, but nobody ever really did the due diligence, understood the brand. And everything it sounds like that you guys are doing that I love. It's all social responsibility. It's all innovation. You're using dollars and investments for the good, for like you said, future sustainability, the food delivery, the dome audio. You know, there's, I know there's electric cars somewhere down there within your portfolio. But I love when I see these family offices and VCs actually put smart money into smart leadership that is changing the way our future is looking versus if you look at 10, 15 years ago, how VCs and family offices were investing. They were just throwing money at kids just who had a great idea because it was like this dot-com bubble. But then when it burst, they still kept doing that. But now I've seen a whole shift in the investment cycle and what people are actually investing in. And it's, it's innovation and sustainability, whatever's going to better our future, not just what's going to better us right now. And I think that's where, and I, you know, Marjorie, I know you've done a lot of work in this space too. I think that's the shift that we're seeing on the investment side when it comes to startups and new companies coming out into the market. Yeah. You know, I think about, we started in Israel, we made an investment in an Israeli company called IMGN. You know, they had a little figure on Instagram, whatever, they got 300,000 views a month. And then, so we took four kids from Israel, brought them over to the U.S. And within a year, they had 77 employees and 5 billion views a month, you know, and we started uh, our VC fund, you know, using them as an example, selling majority interest to one of music. But bottom line is that we're looking at innovative companies and we look at, you know, Israel as an ability. It's not just a dream, you know, in that VC that we started with Randy Zuckerberg, we looked at companies that had revenues. But in Israel, they have, you know, great ideas and, and concepts and tech but they don't know how the marketing and that's where we think we bring a lot to the table and yeah. be able to bring those companies over. So we just invested in Yo Egg, you know, which is uh, the Beyond Burger for, for eggs. It looks like an egg with a yellow yolk, you know, so now we're in LA with it and uh, we're going to expand that product, you know, and have relationships with a lot of the food companies, you know, to bring an artificial egg that's to the marketplace. So anyway, but those are the things that we're doing. So, yeah. What do you feel about like the whole like the incubators and accelerators? I know we've all had experience with clients there dealing with them. I feel like those have been kind of dying. I, mean, I don't know if it was a COVID, but nobody was going to the offices, but I feel like the incubators and accelerators have kind of died out that business model. But I don't know. I'm just, you know, that's just what I've seen. I haven't seen as many out in the market as there used to be. 
Well, I think, you know, I look at STEAM and STEM programs that need to be developed in areas. You look at, you just go back to our franchise model and say, you know, it's so hard to start a new business or a new concept. Uh, the nice thing about franchises, even though you pay a royalty on them, is that someone else is doing the work for you. They've proven out that you could scale up that model. They have a higher success rate if they're done right and you and they have the right franchises supporting. But in the startup, I, I was on the Queens College Foundation. We had an incubator startup. And a lot of the schools and programs that you do, I think because of COVID and the disruptive market, you don't hear about them as much because they're just trying to rearrange their whole lives and the whole you know formats and schools and online and person, workplace. So I think some of those incubators are just being disrupted. But I think it's a great situation because you, know, you have mentors, you have people that are helping them out. You know, a lot of incubators that come out of Israel as well. But I think there's, if you work with universities, you know, it's hard to get help these days. But if you give them an incentive on the help and you're helping them on the education, things like that, you look at uh, Bloomberg and how well he's done over the years. But, you know, he supports things that make sense for him. And I think a lot of the companies have to look at it, you know, between diversity and everything else that needs to be done. There's a lot of opportunities, you know, on training and everything else and uh, and how companies can really support a lot of these ideas that come out of the people. You and I were on a little uh, Fast Company webinar earlier today, and they talked about creatives, you know, and to me, you know, it's not the big creator influence that works for the brand. It's how do we take local creatives and work with local businesses and local startups Half of the people that work for companies could be their own creator and have their own social media followers, but there's no connection, you know, with the brands and you as an agency that's up and coming, you know, you recognize this over the years. You know, I used to say I had an agency and I had a PR company. And if they didn't work together, then I would just get in, I would get new people coming in. And so we ended up having to say, why don't you just do it all for us? And, you know, you guys are like that too when you think about you know what you've done for clients and now with the podcast and looking at other technologies and how you can find the right solutions for the clients and that's what makes you successful. You know, I think we're in the same way. I've done a lot of international business and I think like there's so many great ideas internationally and we don't always get to see them here. I love this partnership with Israel and you also talked about doing electronic cars from China to Israel. How did you get connected to this Israeli startup? How do you get connected to the Chinese? What was that path for you? So 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, I was the first American dealer to speak at the Chinese Automobile Convention in 2012 in Suzhou. And uh, all of a sudden, when I finished speaking, (laughs) there were about a half a dozen companies that said, I want to go public. I want to make you a partner coming into China. And I was like, I'm only speaking. I'm telling you what you have to do. So that was the experience I had. But the the girl that brought me there had developed a web cause and also be connected with uh, my friends at Kelly Blue Book. So she had developed 25 big outlets in China over the years, went public. And now with COVID, you know, she moved to California, got married. And now we said, hey, here's where we have to be. You know, the problem with the electric vehicles is everyone's rushing to get into it. You know, the manufacturers, our systems are saying that, okay, we need to do this. But 
you know, 60% of the fuel is still fossil fuels. So it's really not clean the way they're doing it. You know, I believe in wind and solar. So we developed a, uh, a patent on a wind solar, self-cleaning solar, self-cleaning charging station. So now we're looking to get that manufactured in China. But, you know, when you look at the infrastructure here, it's great, except that, you know, we don't have enough charging ports. China's 10 times bigger than us as far as electric vehicles, 10 times bigger bigger than us in charging ports. And you have a few big companies that try to dominate that marketplace, but the pricing is too high, you know, and then, you know, even though we're required by the manufacturers to put in certain charging stations, then we go to Con Ed here in New York and we find out that there's a backlog and uh, we don't even have the capacity of what's required by the manufacturers. So everyone jumps just like with driverless cars. And I think that a lot of the systems and the tech that we get are, are great, but you know, why shouldn't we have multiple vehicles so that the consumer has that ability to, to look at, you know, not just one vehicle. So the same thing I talked about the franchise system. Yeah, I just came from Vietnam and, you know, look at the VinFast operations and they're making two great electric cars. They're going to be manufacturing here in the U.S. and in North Carolina, but they're starting out selling direct like Tesla did. But, you know, when you're a new brand, you need to have that loyalty with the customer and the dealer franchise system is the best way to do that. Is the franchise system done the right way? Yes, I think so. But I think that, you know, if you're starting something from ground up, you know, why not have one center where you buy the car every three years and multiple service departments? You know, that's the problem with Tesla products like that, where they don't have a great solution. And if you allow people to come in and selling, you know, brand new vehicles, and if they don't like it and they leave, who's going to go and fix it? So at least if you're dealing with a local franchise dealership that has that know-how, even though the manufacturer might drop the line, at least that dealer is who you're going to bring the car back to. So, um, you know, that's so it's going to be interesting what happens in the future. But but we're looking at it and saying we think that if we can bring in multiple brands and give the consumer a choice and show them what the difference is and, and develop programs that make sense for them. I think leasing on electric vehicles is going to be the way way to go because the technology is going to improve. So if someone's going to buy an electric vehicle, even though they don't have to bring it in for service, you know, maybe once every three years, you know, why not switch it up once every three years, make that secondhand vehicle available as an electric vehicle to consumers that can't afford a new one, create a marketplace, you know, and, uh, you know, that's what I envisioned in China. Most people in China kept the cars forever. And the reason being is because they didn't have a leasing market because people thought they were rental cars and people couldn't afford it and they would rather not lease. But here leasing was, you know, what really helped all manufacturers compete. And now they all look like heroes because every lease car has a thousand to five thousand dollars worth of value today. So I think that'll continue. But um anyway, but that's the difference of uh how I got involved on the China side, you know, Israel is just, you know, we have a YPO mosaic chapter that we just started a year ago with 20 YPOs, you know, uh, now we have over uh, 225 YPOs that support Israel and love what Israel is doing in the technology. And we just came from Bahrain and Saudi Arabia on a retreat. And so it was exciting taking advantage. And, and I could see the way Everyone's receptive to be able to be able to use some of the new technology that's developed, you know, outside of the U.S. And I think the franchise system that we're developing here will be excellent to go global on that as well. 
because it really is. And, you know, when you go outside of the U.S., the Starbucks and everyone else, you know, there's recognized brands. But I think the franchise one, two, three will take it globally and be able to create a marketplace globally, not just the U.S. So that's the other vision that we had. This is amazing. Like, like we're running out of time here. So I have a quick question for you. If you could tell anybody two things, two quick answers, Bruce Bedell, two bits of advice that you would give a up and cut, whether it's electric cars, esports, metaverse. What is your best advice? The top two things that a up and coming entrepreneur franchisee needs to know where they should look for or what they should do. Well, make sure they really do the due diligence on their own business because everyone has great ideas and thinks they're the only one with that idea. So mm-hmm. one, you know, make sure that you are the only one with that idea. And, and then, you know, the easiest way to do that is to go to, you know, uh, someone that's going to lend you money other than the bank and ask them to look at your business plan and see what you envision. And if they're not lending you money, that should be the first sign that says, wait a second, you know, Maybe they're seeing something I don't see. I was too excited about this. So I think the, you know, working with whoever is going to be your investors and getting feedback and working with them along the line, you know, before you start taking in capital or diluting yourself, you know, I think those are the things that you should be looking at. And then look at strategic investors and people that are on the board. So easy to just get friends of the family and say, not only are they going to invest money, but who else do they know that could be a strategic advisor to start up companies? I think it's so great because so many strategic advisors and mentors can really help start up businesses. And I, I don't think they take advantage of that as much. Yeah, I think doing your due diligence is probably the most critical thing, at least that I ran into with clients and other partners. You know, Martin, I always talk about doing your due diligence, making smart decisions. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that's a critical thing. Most people, you're right, have this great idea, but people really don't see it through. They just want to have a great idea, make the money, you know, have their minutes of fame. But I think people overlook that due diligence is the most critical thing. And regardless if it's starting a company, a new project, a new partner, hiring anybody, you always need to do your due diligence. I think that's just a really good golden rule to know in the state of business. So I know there's a lot of different companies. We covered a lot of ground. For anybody who has any interest in any of your projects, your companies, your partners, where is the best place to send them to? Is it um, to the family office website or where's a good place for people to go if they have questions or interested in any of your projects? Well, we didn't really consolidate that because we believe in they have interest. They go directly to those projects. But, you know, we have our... Uh, our Big Block site, but it's, uh, you know, my email is bruce at bigblockla.com. You know, anyone could reach me and I could direct them into it. But uh, I think the subnation.gg is a great way for them to see what we're doing at the subnation slide and incorporates, you know, uh, clients or investments in different projects. So I think that's, you know, a great way. The franchise123.com is also a way that they could look at the franchises and and really understand the marketplace. They could download a free book about franchising and if it's right for the people and what's involved in that end. So I think those are good ones to start out with. And uh, PFL MMA is a professional fighters league, which is now growing. And now we just opened up a European division and we give out a million dollars for each weight class every year. So we give out $6 million in cash every year for fighters that never made a lot of money 
So uh, it's some great things happening. Yeah, a lot of good things to come. It was so good having you on the show. I know I've been bugging you for a while. Come on and talk to us, but I'm glad we finally had a chance to get you on. So I do appreciate the time. Marjorie, always good having podcasts with you. Bruce Bindell, it's been wonderful. This is Sarah Miller with Media Mavis Podcast. We'll see everybody next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or want to download past episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, please visit MediaMavensPodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.